a story I came across that I thought you would find interesting is about a pastor who came to a new church. And after he had been there a few months, he got to know two very influential uh, men of the church. And they were brothers. They were multimillionaires. They were known to be, they weren't known to be very godly men, these brothers. But they were determined, uh, the pastor was determined to have an authentic ministry and preach the word and do it with integrity. And as time went on, one of the brothers died. And the older brother, who was still alive, went to the pastor and said, Now, pastor, I know that you're going to be doing the funeral in a couple of days, and I also want you to know that you want to build that brand new auditorium, that sanctuary. So I'll tell you what. I will put the money in the church account to build a brand new church building if you say at my brother's funeral that he was a saint. All you've got to do is say that he was a saint and you don't have to worry about your new church building. I'll take care of it. Well, the pastor felt himself on the horns of a dilemma, as a good pastor would. On the one hand, he desired to be authentic, and on the other hand, he needed the cash for his church. The question was how to build his new church with the money sitting right in front of him and yet be authentic when this guy was a crook that he's doing the funeral for. So the pastor thought for a second and said, well, I'll do it. The businessman wrote out a check for hundreds of thousands of dollars and gave it to the pastor Deposited in the bank account at the church, and it came time for the funeral. So he got up to do the eulogy, and as he stood, he said, Ladies and gentlemen, we are here today to honor and remember a very ungodly sinner. He was a very wicked man who was unfaithful to his wife, who was hot-tempered. He abused his children. He was ruthless in business, and he was a pure hypocrite. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. All right, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord this morning. And we're going to talk about truth-telling this morning. And the scripture from James 5.12 is on the screen. And I will read it, and then we'll pray, and then you can be seated. But I'm reading from the ESV. Your version may be a little different, but we'll all get to the same spot. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. One verse this morning. Let's pray. Gracious God, we desire to hear your voice and your counsel from your word today. We thank you that we can open the scriptures and come to it with confidence that it is your word without error, without defect, without deception. And so, Lord, we seek your counsel into our lives today. We make a decision right now that we will hear your word and be open to the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he applies the word of God into the lives of believers. And if there are those here today who do not know you, may the Holy Spirit, Lord, bring light where darkness resides. And may the eyes of those who are lost in their sin, as we all once were, God, come to the saving realization, knowledge, revelation that Jesus Christ is the answer for their life. He's their only hope. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, God, 
be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Remember that we are in James, and we've called this the gospel on the ground, meaning this is the gospel being lived out in real life, the practicality. James is a practical book, a practical pastor. You remember that James, history tells us that he is the half-brother of Jesus. Tradition also, and tradition's not bad, it just historical tradition says that Jesus was the pastor of that local body of church of believers in Jerusalem. And as you as he opens the book, he's addressing those Christians who have had to leave Jerusalem, who have had to flee because of the intense persecution. But he's writing of how do we take what we believe in our faith, our our gospel commitment. We've re, as believers here today, we've received Jesus Christ. We're Christians, and how does that translate into real life? How does that translate in just the stuff we do? And James is very concerned about living an authentic life that's demonstrable, that can be manifested, that what we say, or rather what we believe, is seen in what we do. I think that's important because Christians, let's be honest, we're just among friends here, right? Sometimes we're not so good about doing what we say. We're good about saying, but when it comes to the doing... And putting it on the ground, sometimes we're not as consistent as I think we might believe. This is really consistent with James's theme when he talks about faith without works. If you look over to chapter 2.17, he says, So also faith by itself, is, if it does not have works, is dead. It's DOA, it's dead. And he goes down to verse 22, and I really love the way it reads here. And he's talking about the example of Abraham. And notice, because every time somebody might hear this maybe for the first time or they haven't thought about it much, they always kind of maybe hear a contradiction that James is somehow talking about working your way to salvation. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, But he says that a person who is a believer will evidence that faith in good works. Good works don't save you, but they're the result of authentic faith. Jesus said you'll know a tree by its what? Its fruit, okay? And the fruit tells you the health of the root system, what's going on inside. And so verse 22 of James 2, just kind of opening this up a little bit and connecting this about faith without works is dead, he gives the example of Abraham and says, verse 22 of chapter 2, you see that faith, faith in Abraham, was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. I like that language there, the amplified, which is oftentimes helpful because it amplifies the Greek and Hebrew, and it's a helpful study tool. It's a little difficult to use your regular regular reading Bible because, again, it expands language and sentences. But just listen to verse 22 in the amplified. He says, you see his faith, Abraham's faith was cooperating with his works and his faith was completed or reached its supreme expression when he implemented implemented it by good works. In other words, that faith, to be genuine, authentic faith, is manifested by our life, what we do. It's seen, it's demonstrated by action. 
All right, now look, in your, look at another scripture, and I, I believe we'll have this on the screen, Matthew 5. And this, what James writes in verse 12, is really expanded, or really Jesus addresses this very same issue in Matthew 5. And so James is probably familiar with this message on the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. And so I just have it on the screen, you can just follow along, because it really, to connect James 5, 12, I connect with this Matthew, because they go together. Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the great, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you, not, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, what Jesus was addressing was really something that was common in James's day in this culture. The, and really, it's an issue in our day, is being people who speak the truth all the time. We're people of truth. We speak the truth all the time. We're authentic with our words. And, and so in the James text passage, some thoughts around is, first of all, he addresses a command to speak truthfully. A command to speak truthfully. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not. Do not swear. James is, if you read and we've studied his letter... He has, a really, has put a lot of importance upon words, our speech, what we say. It's a big deal. Back in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. He's talking about bridling the tongue. Those who fail to control their mouth give evidence of an unregenerate heart, a, a heart that has not been sanctified and, 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 and uh, um, changed by the Spirit of God. Your mouth will reveal what's going on inside. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. He said, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, the law of grace. So again, because he's addressing believers who are under grace, we're not going to be under the condemnation and judgment as unbelievers, but yet, as believers, we still will be judged under the law of grace and liberty. And we're going to talk about that a little later. So those who have been set free by the law of sin and death, we still are exhorted to watch what we say. In chapter 3, verses 2 through 11, he has a lengthy passage about the tongue, the mouth. Let me just point out two verses in verse 7 and 8 of James 3. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. We can tame an elephant, a giraffe. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. He says, do not speak evil against one another. Brothers, he's not talking to unbelievers or pagans. Who's he talking to? Church folks. They got a problem with their mouth. This church excluded but all the other churches out there, right? No, I put myself at the front of the line. Do not, 
speak evil against one another. Brothers, the one who speaks against a brother or sister judges his brother and speaks evil against the law and judges the law. In other words, the whole thing that James is saying, look, this thing of our mouth is when we talk about faith without works, one of the primary ways that we need to exercise authentic faith is connecting the heart and the mouth, 18 inches roughly for most people. And yet there is a mile of disconnect sometimes from what's going on in here. And every once in a while, every once in a while, unguarded, you ever say something and you had to apologize and you say, well, you caught me off guard. That's the whole thing. See, we're good at managing our sin and keeping things under control. It's in those moments that were unguarded that comes out. Oh, my goodness. Where did that come from? Right here. Oh, there's stuff I got I to really get before the Lord and work on. The Holy Spirit, through this apostle, through this word to us today, is concerned about what we say. And how believers speak was a big deal. Jesus, I quoted the scripture in Luke 6 about how you can know a tree by its fruit. And so, the issue here um, against swearing, again, it, it, it's not talking about profanity. The Bible addresses that. But he's talking and making this point. He's saying that a spirit-transformed heart, a person that says they are filled with the spirit of Christ, will often or always or consistently reveal itself in honest and truthful speech. That is the norm of what the Word of God is teaching us. How people speak is the most revealing test of their spiritual state. People sin more with their mouths and their tongues than any other way. One can't do any, everything, someone said, but one can say anything. Little wonder that Jesus said, "For from the mouth the heart speaks. And so in James... He's giving a command here to not do this. And becoming a Christian, as hopefully you know by now, does not automatically uh, change this in our life. It's something that is a process that we have to work on when we're taking the truth. And that's why we're doing what we're doing here on and through the scriptures is that we're taking the truth of God's word and we're constantly putting ourselves in alignment with what God says. I love to use the word calibrate. Calibrating that if we, you know, in machinery, many of you know what the word calibrate is. You know, you have to do systematic and regular calibrating of machinery because if you don't keep it calibrated into a certain standard and you neglect it, then you're going to get a defective product. When we come together to worship, what are we doing? We're calibrating. We're doing what the Word says about setting our mind on things above and not on things of the earth. We're saying, God, help me get in alignment with your truth. That's what we're trying to do this morning as we open the word of the Lord. The Bible says that we are to be truthful. Paul talks in Ephesians 4.15, he says, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Sometimes speaking the truth means confronting people with truth. And sometimes and many times that's not always well received. There's times that, you know, in pastoral ministry, you know, you, you, you do that because that's part of shepherding. You don't like to do it. It'd be easier. And many times I've walked away and said, why couldn't I just keep my mouth shut? Why did I have to do this? Well, I know why I had to do it. Because I'm giving 
the spirit of the Lord's counsel through my uh, gifting and my role as a shepherd elder into that person's life. And for me to just ignore something that is a glaring issue in their life that is bringing harm and destruction, not only to them, but to their families and other people. And I neglect that. Guess what? The Bible calls me a hireling. I'm not a shepherd. I'm a hireling. Hirelings don't help. Unfortunately, because it's not pleasant, I've been on the receiving end of somebody speaking truth into my life that wasn't pleasant. But you know what? Thank God people who love me spoke truth into my life. The book of Hebrews says, talking about the discipline of God in Hebrews 12, he says no discipline is pleasant, but he gives the analogy of a good father disciplines their children so that likewise a good heavenly father disciplines his children. He doesn't, you know, if you if you ever thought about disciplining somebody else's kids, you're probably crazy. And if you've ever even attempted to do it and you live to tell about it, God bless you. The heavenly father disciplines his children. Why? To punish them, to make them feel guilty and Distress, no. Discipline is for a purpose. It is to set back on a right course. That's what discipline is, a disciplining hand from God. When God speaks truth into our life, the reason that we open God's word and we submit ourselves under it and ask God to speak to us is because we're saying, God, I want to submit myself. I want to calibrate. I want to get my life in alignment with what you say. And so many times we go to the Lord in prayer or maybe... Avoid prayer because we know what God's going to say. He's going to say the same thing he said last time that he's not letting you get out of. That person that you need to, to, to deal with and for, ask for forgiveness or, or maybe you forgive them, whatever it is, and you're just trying to get around it. God, isn't there any loophole? How many of you know we like looking for loopholes? We'll even look in the maps and see if there's something back there we can hang on to, you know? Right? God is a God of truth. But secondly, and I don't want to belabor this, but not only does James here in James 5.12 give us a command, but there's a clarification on speaking truthfully. Not only a command of speaking truthfully, but there's a clarification on speaking truthfully. There are some religious groups that by their religious convictions are legally recognized that they do not take oaths, Quakers and Mennonites um, in particular. One of the reasons that I find helpful when I was looking and, and doing a little reading is that Quakers, and I think it's a good thing, but we'll explain, we'll explain uh, about oaths in a minute, but they believe, which I think is a biblical thing, is that they are to be truthful at all times. And their rationale is, is that for them to take an oath is almost a saying that there's certain areas you should be more truthful in. And they said, no, we're to be truthful all the time. Not just, okay, now I really have to be truthful. Okay, I prom, you know. Well, you should always be a person of truth. So they're saying that's contradictory to a Christian. I don't need to take an oath because I am truthful in everything I say, whether I'm in court, right, or I'm at home. I'm a truthful person, and that's uh, their understanding and rationale. Oaths are still important in our culture. Just a few days back, and this is not it's just 
coincidental observation, the president signed into law a modification of the oath that a person takes when they become a citizen of the United States. That now, if the person is offended, and of course everybody's offended about something, if they're offended about the phrase when you become an American citizen that says that what it reads is that they will bear arms on behalf of the United States and perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States that's required by law, a person who wants to become a citizen now can just say, you know what, I'm going to opt out of that. And they won't be required to give that as an oath. Oaths are still a big deal. So when James says, do not swear, again, he's not talking about taking God's name in vain in the sense of a of cursing or using profanity, but what he's talking about, okay, listen to what he's talking about. When he says, do not swear, he's talking about invoking God's name in everyday speech to somehow make it extra truthful. We kind of do stuff like that, don't we? We will say, I swear to you that what I'm telling you is the truth. So everything you haven't sworn, that must be up for grabs, right? Some of you may say this, or you're, I can hear people in my family who are in heaven now, and I swear on my mother's grave. Just, you know, I mean, as a kid, I'll put my hand on the Bible. Well, son of people, and I've done it. As a kid, I put my hand on the Bible and lied through my teeth. And you have too. Doesn't ensure anything. The point is, if you're a truth teller, you don't need to ramp it up with all this extra verbiage because you're a person of integrity. You're a person of truth. That's what James is saying. He's saying if, you're, if your word is true, you don't need to make a big deal about it because your word is a bond. It's, it's part of your integrity. It's part of your walk before the Lord. There's other things. There's examples of where actually... It, you know, so, again, I, that's where I would not agree with the Quakers or Mennonites or others to say it's, it's the Bible forbids any oath taking because there's several examples of oath taking uh, throughout the Bible, and I can you can look those up, get those some other time. But I, I, the one that's the most glaring, where they might say that we're not allowed to take an oath or in a court situation, but yet Jesus did that when he was before the council of his trial, and the high priest uh, asked him. Uh, of whether he was the Christ, the Son of God, and that was under trial and he was under oath, Jesus answered the question. He didn't invoke and say, well, I'm not, I'm not, I don't take oaths. And there's other examples. In fact, there, there's examples of where God himself swore by his name. Paul often said, God is my witness. So there are examples. One example is in Hebrews 6. I'll just read it out of the New Living Translation for you just to have it as a Frame of reference, I know it'll, the Bible says in Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, you maybe just make a note of this, that God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. God himself has taken an oath. So the point is, is not that the Bible prohibits taking oaths, rather It's that we are forbidden to take meaningless, frivolous oaths and false vows that are are not true to our word, that are meant 
to deceive or to present something different than what is intended. That's what James is saying. Don't do that. So we're not to do that kind of thing because it is contradictory to people that are identified and known as truth tellers. They don't need to invoke God into the situation or they don't need to make... Let me, let me unpack it this way. We're talking about frivolous or meaning, meaningless oaths. It's, it's, it's where we do something on a... make a rash commitment. I was thinking in, um, in the New Testament, you remember when King Herod... Uh, he was drunk. People do dumb things when they're drunk. And he swore to the daughter of Herodias that he would give her up to half his kingdom because of her dancing. But he was drunk. He made a frivolous oath. And what did she ask for? The head of John the Baptist. Herod regretted that he made such a frivolous commitment. But he didn't want to be embarrassed by all the bigwigs that he was partying with, and he had to honor it. That's a frivolous, meaningless type of thing. It's, it's giving into the pressure of the moment. Sometimes we'll, you know, ch- uh, pastors and churches do this kind of very manipulative thing to get people to make a vow or a commitment to give, you know, $1,000 this month or just write it or Make a commitment. You're going to pray every day for an hour or read your Bible for an hour, whatever. And it, Not that any of that is bad in of itself. But you should never make rash commitments just because you're under pressure and being manipulated. First of all, it shouldn't be done from up here, but you shouldn't give in to that because that's a frivolous oath. That's a frivolous vow. The bottom line is if people just meant what they said, and were true to what they said, we wouldn't have to do those things. One other example, just before I leave this, turn to Acts 5, verses 1 through 9, just kind of go left a few blocks, and you'll be in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. I want you to read this because it's just a glaring example of a seriousness of people who made a rash vow or rash commitment, but their life had no intention of matching what their mouth said. Acts 5, 1 through 9. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, sometimes being complicit to deceit, is almost as if you did the act. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid at the apostles' feet. Now let me stop there. It isn't that somehow he's being condemned because he didn't sell everything. That's not the point. The implication as you read it is he did something under false pretenses to present something as being one thing before God. When in reality, it was something quite different. Okay, Look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds for the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And it goes on to say how he was struck dead. Now, I don't hope none of that happens. 
hope that doesn't happen with me. I think there was a very specific thing there because it says that fear came upon the whole church. That you want to be a part of that church, you better be a person of truth. You better not be, as my uncle used to say, shucking and jiving. He was from New York. You better be a person of truth. And so the implication is, is that they came to give what appeared to be something that was all, but yet they deceived. Their word was not accurate with their deed. And in this particular case, the Holy Spirit spoke very definitively to show that, listen, the Holy Spirit is present among us. Now again, I, 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 does anything change? Is the Holy Spirit present among us? Dishonor or do something to present yourself more spiritual when in fact you're lying. That's what it says, you're lying. You're not a person that is truthful. James is driving it home. We are to be people of truth. Don't take oaths. Don't, don't have your fingers crossed behind your back. Don't have a presentation that's one thing when there's something different going on inside. So he gives us a command. He clarifies the whole oaths and vows. And, but he says, look, number three, I want you to make a commitment to speaking truthfully. There's a command to speak truthfully, clarifying to speak truthfully. But make a commitment to speak truthfully. One writer said this, and I thought this was spot on. If anger was the real issue of murder, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, that's the reason we connected that Matthew 5 passage. If, if anger, referring back to Matthew 5, if anger was the real issue of murder and lust was the real issue of adultery, selfishness the real issue of divorce, then deceit is the real issue of oaths. He says Jesus wasn't addressing whether or not we should take an oath. He was talking about whether or not we are truthful. We don't tell the truth because we have taken an oath. We tell the truth because we are truthful. And to give a little kudos to the Quakers, that was their point. We don't take oaths to somehow that one form of speech is magnified or another. We are telling the truth 24-7 every day all the time, right? So truthful communication is essential for good relationships. But communication dealing with truth, you ever had to communicate with somebody and you never quite, you're playing all these little games back and forth because you never really know if each of you are telling the truth. You're not sure if they're telling the truth. So you posture what you say, you watch, you parse words, you, you do all this type of thing. We must be people of the truth. If we lie and deceive it's because we think that somehow we'll hold that relationship together. No relationship, business, marriage, family, church, nothing can be held together by deception and untruthfulness. It will bust, it will break. It's like wrapping that damaged pipe with, with uh, duct tape. Sooner or later, that thing's going to break. You may have a little bit of peace, a little bit of calm, but you know the thing about lying? You just got to keep up with the lies because you don't remember. That's the reason those of you in law enforcement, you know, in the interrogation, they'll interrogate for hours upon hours because they want you to get to the point you can't remember what you said. But if you're telling the truth, guess what? You'll never have to worry about being caught because you're a truth teller. You don't have to worry about it. Now, we've got to be tactful, right? We've got to be tactful. Some people need a little to learn some tact. 
Mr. Myrick, a gentleman, had to go to Chicago on business and persuaded his brother to take care of his cat during his absence. And though his brother hated cats, the brother agreed. And upon his return, Mr. Myrick called from the airport to check on the cat, how the cat was doing. And his brother said, your cat died, and then hung up. Well, Myrick was obviously very upset and stricken with grief, and it was magnified by his brother's insensitivity, just the coldness of it. So he called it again to kind of, you know, ream him out. He said, there's no need for you to be so blunt, he said. He said, well, what was I supposed to say, asked the brother. He said, You've, you could have broken the news gradually. You don't just say that. I'm at the airport. He said, you could have said, uh, the cat was playing on the roof. And later in the conversation, you could have said, he fell off. And then you could have said, he, he, he broke his leg. And then later in the conversation, that when you picked him up, you realized that he had passed away during the night. It didn't heal. And... I'm sorry, your cat died. You just got to learn, brother, to be more tactful. He says, by the way, how's mom doing? My brother said, she's playing on the roof. Here are some ways that we can fall into deception and falsehood. And I'll confess to you right now, I've done every one of them. And you have too. The half-truth. You tell the truth, but not all the truth. Abraham lying to Pharaoh about his wife, saying that she was his sister. Technically, she was, but that was, again, not the intent. See, just being correct in the letter when the intent is deceiving, that's wrong. The white lie. I don't know why they call it the white lie. The white lie. These are quote-unquote, you know, we say, oh, they're innocent lies. It was just a little white lie. They don't hurt anyone. You call in sick to work when you're really well. That's a lie. The lie to cover for someone else. Someone that you know is going to annoy you and be a long conversation, and you tell your children, tell them I'm not here. What have you just done? You've lied, but you've put them into a situation to lie for you, right? Tell them I'm not here because I'm reading my Bible. Oh, that's a good example. (laughs) How about exaggeration? You stretch the truth to make yourself look better or to evoke sympathy for your situation. One of the things that really bothers me is preachers who exaggerate. They become the hero of their own stories. How about the silent lie? The other person assumes something flattering about you that is clearly false, but you don't correct it. The cover-up lie. You hide your own wrongdoing with the rationalization that it could hurt the other person too much to find out the real truth. Now, again, there's wisdom and things involved there, but if lying is is what's motivating and generating this part of your communication, then I think certainly that's something God will not bless and God will not honor. Jesus is a truth person. He is the way, what? Truth and the life. The evasive lie. You change the subject or conveniently dodge the truth by not answering directly. You just turn on CNN, Fox, MSNBC for election coverage, and you'll see number seven 
24 hours a day, seven days a week in the election cycle. When they have to to discern what is, is. They have to parse every word instead of, you know, the reason one guy, which, again, please don't, I'm not making yay or nay because it's a disaster all the way around. But you know one reason why certain politicians are getting a lot of attention and they say, well, he just says it like it is. It's because some people, I mean, most of us are just sick of all the double talk. Now, it doesn't mean that what they're saying, even though they just say it is what it is, that that's good. It's just the fact that somebody is talking unfiltered. It's maybe as crazy as it might be. They're just saying, well, at least he just, he's not worried about what people think. And that in itself is a danger when you reach the place where you just say, well, I just say whatever's on my mind. I don't care what people think. Well, you should. Because the words reveal your life. We need to be people of truthful communication. So James, as we come to number four, there is a consequence. He gives us the command. He clarifies the whole oaths and vows. He exhorts us to be committed to speaking truth. But number four is there is a consequence of refusing to speak truth. Truthfully, Look at um, verse 12 again. He says, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Your version might say judgment. There is something that James is saying is that you and me will be held accountable by God. James 5.9 says that we are not to judge another person because we will be judged by the judge. He's giving us counsel. And again, he's addressing Christians. He's saying, brothers, brethren. Now, let me just clarify something here. As Christians, we have already been judged at the cross. Jesus Christ bore the weight of our sin and put us in right relationship with our maker. Okay? So we are. he's not talking about a judgment in that sense because we have been judged in Christ who has bore our sin. Okay? But nevertheless, we will still come under a judgment, not of, of a judgment of sin, but a judgment of works. And we don't have time to get into that, but Christians will be judged by what they do because we have been saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2. And that is not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast or brag, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in them, to do them. So our judgment as believers is not a condemnation, Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.3, my life is hidden with Christ in God. God sees me. He sees me all wrapped up in Jesus. He says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm not being condemned. But I'm still accountable. I'm still accountable. Because he's my Lord. He's my boss. I'm going to answer for shaving truth on my taxes. When I know it's clearly deceptive. When I'm turning in false receipts to be reimbursed for something in order to get a little extra money. Deception. You know, what's, 
because we are prone to be deceived and rationalize about it. Remember in Matthew 7, I've repeated this. Jesus said, there will be those that come to me on that day, and that's going to be a day of judgment of the lost. And he'll say, there will be those who say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not, you know, we do all these religious things? I mean, they weren't they casting out demons, healing. I mean, they did a lot of works and things that were very uh, dramatic. But what did Jesus say? Depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. I mean, he knew them in his sovereignty. He knew them. But he did not know them in an intimate, connective relationship. So as believers, when we see that, we do not want to be in a, in a situation where we are being judged by our Lord and Master. We want to be pleasing and reflective of the wonderful grace that he's given to us. We're not off the hook. We are still accountable to our Lord. Here's, here's the, here's the wrap-up. Life cannot be divided into compartments, and we, we're good at that. We divide life into compartments in which God is involved in some rooms. We kind of leave him out of other rooms. Some of you have read My Heart, Christ's Home, little booklet. Talks about Jesus coming into my house. How many of you read that book? Know what I'm talking about? My Heart, Christ's Home. I would check it out, look at it. Just a little book, take you 30 minutes to read it. And talks about, uses the picture of a house, of my life, and Jesus coming in to live in my house. And he comes into the living room where I'm entertained and he wants to be Lord over. And each room has characteristics until he comes and asks about that room. I say, oh, Master, I keep that locked. I'd rather you not go into that room. There's things in there I'm ashamed I want you to see. And Jesus says, well, I can't be Lord of the house until I have mastered every room of your life. It's a great analogy, simple truths. And we can't have some areas where we just say, well, you know, that's office stuff. But what I do at church, no, 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 no. We are to be truthful people. God does not need to be invited into certain departments of my life by me invoking, I swear to God. I live under God's rule 24-7 all my life. I'm a truth teller. I need to be more truthful. Am I prone to deception? Yes. Somebody asked me to do something. And I know it's important. And then they pressure, or shouldn't say pressure, they ask me, and I realize I've totally forgotten it, blown it. What's my instinct? Because I don't want them to think I'm a, 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 you know, forgetful person. And I say, yeah, I did that. And then right away I do it. Well, that's a lie. That's a lie. It's not truthful. Just say, I don't know, I didn't do it but I'll take care of it. Because we have this pride thing. We want to look good to everybody else. And sometimes being truthful is willing to come clean with our sin. Because we're living under the sunshine of God's glory. God is everywhere. Some of you may have seen the gruesome uh, news, hidden camera of 
officials that work for Planned Parenthood who in an undercover video tape were discussing the financial transaction benefits involved in selling body parts of babies that were aborted under the guise or whatever medical research, actually talking specific parts of babies' bodies that are financially going to be transacted. And there it was, recorded. They're being judged by their words. We will be judged by our words. We will be held accountable by our words. I always pray when I, before I preach Psalm 1914, and I'll close with this. Psalm 1914 should be something I encourage you to say every day when you get up. Memorize it. It's very simple. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Because where do words come from? What I'm meditating on my heart. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. People of truth.